live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. This sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophy. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. As many of you all know, I came from a single parent home. And apparently, according to Colorado head football coach Deion Sanders, those who come from single-parent homes don't make the best leaders. Take a listen. Quarterbacks are different. Yeah. We want mother-father, you know, dual parent. Mm -hmm. We want that kid to be 3-5 and up because he's got to be smart. Mm -hmm. um, not bad decisions off the field uh, at all mm -hmm. because he has to be a leader of men. It's so many different attributes in what we look for. Uh, physical, I mean, offensive line. My defensive line is totally opposite. What do you mean? Single mama. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Trying to get it. <laughs> uh, he's on free lunch. I mean, like, uh, uh, I mean, I'm talking about just trying to make it. He's trying to rescue mama. Like, mama barely made the flight. A lot to unpack there. So let's get right into it. The word of the week is mindful. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Huh? Yeah. For further context, Dion said this on The Rich Eisen Show. The only black people other than Dion who were on set when he said this was another black producer. Now, I've been on The Rich Eisen Show multiple times. Dion and Rich Eisen worked together at NFL Network, where Dion was an analyst for a number of years before getting into head coaching. But that Dion said this in mixed company is something that also needs to be considered here. But let's also deal with what Dion said first. Now, he wanted his quarterbacks to be leaders. And his idea of showing leadership is having excellent grades, coming from a two-parent family, and making good decisions. But his defensive linemen, he wants them to be on, quote, free lunch. Immediately what came to mind is that this was a not-so-coded way of Deion saying what he looks for in black players. Although he didn't specifically say he was talking about black athletes, in college football, black athletes, on average, make up 57% of college football teams. On some teams, particularly those in the South, black athletes are accounting for 70% of the football team. I should also mention that Deion's son, who followed him from Jackson State to play quarterback at Colorado, while Deion is in a relationship, he's divorced twice. So technically, none of his kids are in a two-parent home. So even though Dion didn't specify that he was talking about black athletes, anyone who listened to what he said knew that he was talking about black folks. Because just based off sheer numbers, as I just pointed out, black athletes are primarily who he'll be recruiting. And let's not forget that Dion last coached at Jackson State, where pretty much 90% of his players were black. The real issue here is whether intentional or not, Dion was advancing some pretty lazy stereotypes about black people wrapped in a nice big bow of classism. Now, I could name a number of phenomenal leaders and athletes that come from single-parent homes. LeBron James, for example, raised by a single mother. Baltimore Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson, whose father died when he was eight years old from a heart attack. Lamar is the fourth black quarterback to win the NFL Most Valuable Player Award. And here's another pretty good athlete raised by a single mother who turned out to be a pretty outstanding leader, also changed history, Jackie Robinson. Look, we all know the reality of the kind of negative impact that an uninvolved father could have. But low and high key, Dion was playing footsie with another racist trope that has historically hurt black quarterbacks, that they aren't smart enough to play the position. For years, white coaches openly operated under that assumption, especially the one about black men not being leaders of men. The other part of Dion's comments dealing with wanting his defensive players to come from single parent homes because they're likely to have an angrier demeanor was equally off-putting. You can have tough, mean players that don't live inside of racially charged stereotypes. Besides, I'm calling Major Cap anyway. If there was a top-tier quarterback recruit who had interest in Colorado and they came from a single-parent household, do you think Deion Sanders would look the other way? Just as if there was a big-time defensive end who came from a two-parent home, got good grades, wasn't on free lunch, and didn't make poor decisions, do you think Dion would pass on that dude too? Another thing, had a white coach said what Dion did, and trust me, I'm sure many of them have said it privately, all hell would have broken loose. 
I know Dion likes to lean into being extremely honest and transparent, but being at Colorado is going to bring a different kind of scrutiny and limelight. He's getting paid a lot more money. He's in a better football conference. The expectations are much higher. And not only that, he is not going to have the protection of being surrounded by black folks. He's now being listened to by a wider, much more mixed audience. Forget about being prime. Dion has got to be mindful. The word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guest today is a very accomplished multi-hyphenate. She sings, she dances, she acts, she does stand-up comedy, and she's currently on two of the most engaging and entertaining shows on television. HBO's hit comedy sketch series, A Black Lady Sketch Show, and The Upshaws, which is in its third season on Netflix. She's played Tina Turner and Whitney Houston, and the baby mama nobody seemed to be able to forget on the very popular series, The Game. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Gabrielle Dennis. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Gabrielle, it's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. And before we get into the teeth of your career, just how versatile you are, you're multi-hyphenated, which I think is always such a great term to describe uh, performers and entertainers like you. Like, I can't even call you an actor because you do so many different things. But before we get into the teeth of your career, your origin story, let me start by asking a question I ask every guest that appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And that is, when did you become unbothered? Oh, I would say not until like, recently stepping into being like you know what i'm gonna live my life and i think the pandemic had a lot to do with helping that and open my eyes with how like how i so valued my career and like the importance of all of the things that that meant and then stepping back and be like but wait there's other elements in my life that need attention the garden is not fully watered and fertilized so i think now just being unbothered specifically with this industry of not feeling that pressure anymore not feeling like, ah, the crazed eyes. I'm like, I need a job. I need a da 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 Like, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, it'll happen how it's supposed to happen. God's had me covered for so many years. So a lot of that fear has been removed. And it's just walking fully in faith and just being unbothered by that. It Was there an event or a moment that triggered you into this state of being? I would say like this, the pandemic, like I put myself under a lot of pressure and a lot of stress. And even through this climactic time in my life with like, you know, the whole world is experiencing this thing together. I still was working. The jobs didn't stop. And even though as a germaphobe, it was very stressful to work during the pandemic. It was just an eye opener that no matter what, God got me. So it was just kind of like, why, why stress? Why fear? And also if it's not the career, I was ready to retire. I was like, well, I guess if because I'm a germaphobe, it's like, so who about to be working someplace without a mask in a pandemic? Not I. I love uh, design and, and doing things with my home. So I was really ready. I legit had told my reps. I was like, I'll just retire. And uh, who buys something else to do that I can work in a mask? Because I just became, it clicked like, this cannot be all of my life. This can't be the only identifying marker for me. So it just became very important for me to feel full in my whole self. And I think the pandemic really helped shift that a lot. 
And probably not just for me, I'm sure. So the pandemic, because I'd said this joke with my mother, who also was an extreme germaphobe, is, I should say, it's not in the past. I was like, oh, so the pandemic is basically called your Thursday. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. She was, you know, the, the person who was wiping down the grocery bags. Like, she was in her full element during this uh, pandemic. She was like, I've been telling you for years that these germs and what's going to happen. I was like, okay. The doomsday was upon you. Well, obviously, one of the things that you continued to film during the pandemic was a Black Lady Sketch Show, which is a fantastic project created by Robin Thede. It's you, Ashley, like so many very talented people. I got a chance to participate and see the madness up close. Yeah, you did. Yeah, and that was a <laughs> lot of fun to be a part. It was the first time I was ever, I think, a part of a, a sketch and, and certainly nothing that was ever on that magnitude. So how did you become involved with the Black Lady Sketch Show? Well, actually, Robin and I knew each other from like years ago. Um, I used to do stand up comedy a lot. I was in an improv group. And so she had her own sketch troupe and things like that. So we just crossed paths a lot. A lot of the same circles in that world, um, being out at comedy clubs and the whole nine and supporting each other's shows, uh, you know, going to see live theater. And I ran into her essence, I think the year before we booked this. And it was just great seeing her. I hadn't seen her in years. And then she called me. So I think she sold the show in January, like at a lunch, like there was no pilot, there was no script. She just, boom, they bought it at lunch. I think that was in January. I got a text in February and she's like, hey girl, like, would you be interested in doing this show? Like the world needs to see you be funny. I am so familiar with your comedy and, I, and I've been following your career, but like the world needs to see you let loose. And like, I was like, um, yes. <laughs> so that's kind of how that started. She just basically, Robin put everything together by hand. Like she put the whole cast together and um, I'm so grateful to her and to, to Issa and to um, HBO for just kind of signing off and like being on board and excited to have me join. And then just stepping in those shoes, those comedy shoes that I love so much. Yeah. I've had Robin on the podcast and I believe, I think at that lunch, um, Issa was there and I think they saw Denzel in Denzel Washington. Oh, did they? I'm- yeah. So it was a story. She said that she felt like that played a role in them agreeing to green light without any pilot, nothing or whatever. Cause I guess, I think Denzel sent something to the table or whatever. It was some, something he, oh, Daddy Denzel. see what I'm saying? Something, <laughs> something he did. And I'm, I guess maybe that played a part in impressing the executives at HBO so much. They were like, yes. Let's sign her up. Let's do it. <laughs> That's so funny. I wish I knew that part of the story. I used to call uh, Denzel my like my industry father. In my head, I was like, he gives me all advice. Like, you know, who doesn't love Denzel Washington? But and I never met the man. But like in my head, I'm like, That's my my dad. Then I realized, oh, he got real kids. Um, <laughs> and uh, one of them is acting. And I was like, so I can't call him Daddy Denzel no more because that doesn't make any sense. Uh, but in my head, I was like, he gives me advice. <laughs> he guides me the way. Every time he talks, he's always saying something so wise. And he just is so Denzel in those moments that you're just like, I could just listen to you just all day. Just read a phone book. It, it doesn't really matter. Now, when Robin told you that a Black Lady Sketch Show was going to be called a Black Lady Sketch Show, what was your re- reaction to that? I was, I thought it was a placeholder. I didn't think it was going to be the real name. You know what I mean? Because a lot of times you do stuff, there's like a temporary name or like a little pseudo name that they give. Like, so when you're out filming, people don't know that you're shooting, you know, the Game of Thrones. It's called, I don't know, Dragon Ball Z. I don't know. <laughs> but like, so when she said a Black Lady Sketch Show, I honestly, I didn't think, I didn't think the world was ready for a show called a Black Lady Sketch Show. And they were, you know, it was like, cool, sign me up. But what I love about it is that HBO wasn't afraid to put the word black. There's something about that word that makes people uncomfortable. And it's like, well, y'all got to get comfortable. But she made it very clear like this. The title of the show lets you know exactly what you're you're getting into. There is no confusion. There is no mystery. There is no, uh, you know, trying to trick you into watching a show like it's a it's a sketch show with black women. And it was historic in the sense that it was created by a black woman, written, directed, starring like all hands on deck were black women. And I thought it was just so amazing. There were a couple of people, you know, they're going to always have something to say online about, you know, and again, that word black makes them uncomfortable. And I said that, and I've even had to say in the comment, like that says more about those people than it does about our show. So I'm very proud of our show. I stand by our show and, you know, ABLSS to the day I die. <laughs> so I'm sure, cause I'm sure you got, what about a white lady sketch show? And I'm like, yeah, it's called Saturday Night Live. 
Like it's yeah. How many comedy shows you want me to name that have nothing but white people in them for the most part? Yeah, and I feel, and that's what I love is that she decided to name it a show to give it this platform, and like and like she explained, this makes it you know very clear what the viewer is getting into, and you make that decision if you want to go on the ride with us or not. And if you do, hopefully you'll enjoy it because we do touch a lot of topics that are definitely universal. But the magic of our comedy is that yes, it's universal, but there's so many things that are so specific to our culture and specific to our experiences as Black women that we don't get to see in other um, spaces because if they're not written by, you know, women that experience that, then how, you can't expect a white man to know what a black woman goes through and to find the comedy in that because people Hollywood loves to draw and dredge up our drama and our pain, but to be able to highlight the comedy and the absurdity in so many of our situations is, um, it's a joy to do it. Well, that's why I thought the invisible spy sketch was brilliant because it it's like on one end, black women are tasked with saving the world. On the other end, we're also often invisible. And I was like, if people don't understand the joke in this and the fact that you guys were also able to make it funny and, you know, allow people to critically think that is what makes that sketch show brilliant and stand apart. I think from other sketch shows, it's like because of, of something like that, that other people probably wouldn't necessarily get or know how to make funny. You know, what's so funny that sketch in particular, uh, that, that sketch that create that, uh, character was created by the lovely Ash Nicole black. And it's funny how so many people see themselves as the invisible spy, you know, like, I relate to it. Like all of us see ourselves invisible in some aspect of life, but I've even had some of the uh, people on Twitter, white men, gay men, this, that, and the third, like people like, I am the invisible spy. Like people like attached to that. And I think what's great is black women, hey, we sometimes win the award as the underdog and underdogs relate to that that sketch in particular. So I love it. Uh, black Lady Sketch Show, you guys have been nominated for an Emmy multiple times. You've, you've also won. How meaningful is it for the show and is it for maybe the growth of black comedy overall that you all were recognized in that way? I think it's great. I mean, just to have that conversation really speaks volumes to the progress um, the industry has made. Now, a win will help us get a little legs further down the road, you know, but, you know, hopefully what I really, really, really pray for that show and what I really, really hope for Robin is that a Black Lady Sketch Show has become an institution for breakout stars, for the birthing of new comedy artists, be it writers, be it the directors, be it uh, the the talent. You know, our director from last season, she won the award. Shouts out to Bridget. But, you know, SNL is an institution of comedy. And for decades, it's been around. And I hope that Black Lady Sketch Show gets its chance to have some longevity and get some long teeth in the game and to really just explore new talent and explore new spaces and creativity that we just don't get a chance to see often. You just mentioned SNL. I read that you once tried out for SNL. Uh, what was that experience like? I'm one of the SNL rejects. You're one of the <laughs> SNL rejects. You know what? It's so funny. Like, I don't know if you remember those cameras called the flip cam. Oh, yeah. So back in the days, that's what I did a lot of auditions for and stuff like that. So I took my little flip cam to SNL because for me it was experience. It was like this bucket list thing that I was so excited to do. When I tell you the people at SNL thought we were crazy because you know as black women we just love to support and love on each other. And so many of us knew each other or knew of each other. So it was like a love fest and like going to New York, having this experience. I think I caught a cab with like Leslie Jones and Simone. I think was in my Simone Shepard was with me in a in a van and like we're just like excited. So I'm walking around my camera. I have some amazing backstage footage that I need to to capture. But the people at SNL were like, usually people go to their their dress rooms and they don't talk to the competition. Meanwhile, we're like, yes, because to me, it was like one of us is going to get this job and it's going to be amazing because one of us represents all of us. And it's a step of progress. You know what I mean? Um, So I'm very thankful to Keenan Thompson for like, you know, shouting out to the world that he basically called SNL out for not having a black woman cast in so long. And that, um, so it was like, I was part of the Georgia's, you know, we were just part of this troop that I was part of maybe 10 women, but it was a good experience. I really loved it. And I, it was weird. They found me, I had submitted before through SNL and then like they, they had me do stand up for some reason instead of sketch. So, well, I, I think maybe that's something that people uh, maybe didn't know about you either prior to a, a black lady sketch show or, or some other things is that you have firm roots in comedy. Why did you make your starting point? you know, as you were exploring this career in entertainment, why was comedy the place where you started? Comedy is something I just always have enjoyed. It's something I grew up, a lot of the 
what we had back when Blockbuster was a thing. Um, it was either comedy or horror films. Like <laughs> that is the range for my psychosis. Uh, but like, I remember discovering the first time I discovered Death Comedy Jam, my best friend's sister was watching it like one night on like New Year's Eve. And of course we were too young to go anywhere. And she was watching like a marathon. And I was like, what? Like, you know, and I just, for something that always stuck in the back of my head is something I had wanted to try. So when I got to LA, it was like, well, give it a shot. Nobody knows you here. And if you suck, no one's going to tell anybody because um, <laughs> it is what it is. But it's just something about laughter that is so therapeutic. It's something about laughter that just fills your heart. And um, I just, I don't know, I just love, and because I used to do theater, you get that instant gratification of how people respond to what's on the stage. And yes, people will cry with you, but when they laugh, when you hear that laughter, there's just something so special about it. And I just always like bringing, bringing joy to people. Have you ever bombed? I'm sure, but not bad. Like, never like a boo or like went off crying or nothing like that. But for sure, there was a couple of times when you're testing out materials like, okay, that one didn't land. Let's try this next one, you know. But it's funny. It was very weird when I first started. It was... It was really just easy to me in the sense of like, and I don't want to say easy because stand-up comedy is nowhere near easy, but as far as the comfort with it, like the comfort of, of getting on that stage, that part of it wasn't hard for me. So it, getting the audience work was fun. The only time it became a challenge, and I'm going to be honest, why I stopped, I started to slow down and doing it when I became known as an actor. I was in my own head about it. So there was this weird thing where I didn't want to be introduced with my credits. Like, let me earn these laughs. But then I noticed because I was on this show where I played this baby mama and it was in the height of all this drama, some people weren't paying attention because they were trying to figure out, I would hear, that's her, like, so I had to eventually address the the elephant in the room, but um, for sure, I feel like every comedian has bombed in their, in their career. There's definitely, I think, varying degrees of that. I don't think I was in stand-up comedy long enough to probably have like my worst bomb experience. You just referenced it. You played Janae on the game. And <laughs> man, look, it, don't act like we don't know. I mean, we obviously know. But I figure, you know, I can't get over that. I, I realize I'm going to be Janae to the day I die. <laughs> well, I, I guess in a weird way, it's sort of a compliment because people, it was such an unforgettable way you played that role. It resonated with a lot of people. I think a lot of people were bringing some of maybe their trauma to the situation. <laughs> I guess let's start at the beginning with it. Like, how did you land the role as, as Janae on the game? Well, I, like many who watched the show, was a fan. So it was only on one season, maybe one, I think only, I think I came in in the second season. So the show was already a success and a hit. So I got caught in, I auditioned, it went well. And, oh, this is for my actors. So there's this thing called general meetings. I had heard about them. I had had one with the head of casting at CW at the time. And it's all about timing because a lot of times these generals go nowhere, but it was just about timing that in that moment, they happened to be also looking for this role. So I don't think I would have gotten the audition had I not had that general meeting because obviously the head of CW is like, see this girl. So I go in, I read, I think like the next day or the day after, go in to do a chemistry read the following day. Pooch is there, Mara Akil, Mara Brock Akil, Salim, um, uh, Kenny, I think some other producers were in the room. And Pooch was so lovely. Everybody there was just so genuine and nice. I did the chemistry. I left. I thought I was only supposed to do like two or three episodes. Then when I got the script that said she was, she dropped the the, the P-bomb. I was like, oh, job security. I was like, I'm coming back. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So I'm living in this joy. Like life is good. Life is great. Then I realized oh, I got some enemies out in these streets. And when I tell you people were, some women were a little bit like, y'all know this is fake, right? There is no, San Diego don't have a football team called the, the Sabres. You know that both the characters that play Derwin and Melanie are married in real life. So it was just so interesting. I remember the first time I realized people had an issue with this character was, <laughs> This girl had introduced me to somebody at this party. It was an industry event. And she was real stank in the face. Like, oh. dang. <laughs> when I tell you, I was like, okay, that was weird. 
she came and apologized to me later because she didn't even know why she was, she was like, I didn't know what it was. She was like, it was something about you that told me I don't like this girl. She must have slept with my man. Da, 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 da. And I was like, ma'am, I need to go see a therapist tomorrow because <laughs> you're just out here. I, so I was out there just catching strays, you know what I'm saying? From angry people. But I realized over the years, it's because like you said, people were bringing their own trauma. Like there were people going through stuff that were like aligning. It was just aligning what was happening on that show. And so people that were going through either baby mama drama or, you know, relationship drama that was similar to whatever uh, Derwin's character was doing to Melanie, you know, it was just like, there was these false narratives that Janae was the other woman and she never was. She was, you know, she was in a full relationship with the guy. It was a very interesting thing. So that's when I kind of stopped. I slowed back on the comedy a little bit because I was like, oh, these people are not ready to laugh at me. But then it was lovely. I remember I did, um, Monique had a, a her late night show at the time and she was so sweet, the, what she said on the show. And that's when I realized there was a whole nother world out there of women who loved my character because she was so independent. She was not stressing over this man. She stood on her own two feet, 10 toes down and taking care of what she needed to do for her child. And I love that, that character was so strong in that. And and she didn't play, in my opinion, the, the stereotypical baby mama creating drama. She was actually trying to avoid drama most of the time. You know, it is what it is. I realized that that's my, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, that's my Rudy Huxtable. That's my, you know what I'm saying? Like there's certain people we look at that we just won't let them live outside of that space. I have won a lot of people's hearts over since, but I still got a couple people. They just, they're like, no, I still, I can't get over it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, I tried to have an exchange with this one girl on Twitter. I was like, oh, you know, something about, I know how you feel about the character. It's like, no, no, you bitch. I was like, ah! Like, I mean, she didn't call me that, but that, that was the energy. She was like, no, definitely you. That was the tone, right. Yeah, she was like, can't problem with you. I was like, you know, I just, so I just took some boxing classes and I was like, I'll be ready in these streets if I need to be. <laughs> So, uh, I mean, uh, you know, again, it, it is a double-edged sword because on, on one hand, it's a testament to how well you played the character. Was there anybody, any situation you drew inspiration from as you, you know, developed the character of Janae? For me, I've I've never been in that kind of situation ever in my life, but I've observed. I'm a good observer, and I think that's why I've avoided a lot of pitfalls in my life is by learning from, I usually hang with like older cousins or older people and like, I watch how they move and I listen to warnings and I listen to advice. So I had never really experienced anything that dramatic, but experiencing and watching others go through pain and others, you know, so being able to pull from other people's experiences and, and being firsthand, seeing them cry or, or going through that thing, um, what helped. Um, and then, you know, as an actor, there's a lot of times I just use substitution for, yes, I've never been pregnant, but I have birthed, you know, this career, I, there's this this thing that I love of mine, you know. So just finding ways to substitute if if it's not a baby, if it's not the man, it's it's not the marriage, if it's not the whatever. Finding things to substitute in your real life that helps you um, kind of find that emotion emotional range that you need. So uh, after that, how many baby mama ish roles were you offered? <laughs> Similar roles. After that, let me tell you something. I've never played the other woman. I was like, I'm about to be on my Will Smith because you know, because Will Smith had. For years, I don't know if he's since, but I remember he was known for not playing bad, like the bad guy. So I was like, I don't want to play the other woman. I don't want to play nobody's baby mama. I don't want to do any of that that will help add fuel to the fire. Because like I eat based on how people respond to your characters. So, I mean, I guess in that world, it was great because the more people talked about that storyline, the more I stayed around. So I was like, thanks, boo. But, but I didn't pay another baby mama until recently when I got the upshots because I was like, you know what? I'll do it. I was like, I'll, I got to do it. I was like, look at this cast. You know what I'm saying? I just was like, I, I, just got, I had to do it. And because it's so funny, it was a chance to be funny with it. Whereas with Janae, I didn't really get to be funny. It was just, I was a part of actually a heavy storyline in a comedy. So I didn't really get to be light and funny with that. So yeah, now... I'm like, Tasha's a mess. She's hilarious. She's another strong, independent woman. And she loves her animal prints. And she loves a good boot and um, colors. So she's fun. She's very, and people love her. No one's ever actually even brought up the two comparisons because she's so drastically different and stands on her own two feet. So I have a lot, a lot of fun on the Upshaws. You've been at this for, a, a, you know, a while now, even though 
is interesting to look at your career because even though you've been at it for a, a while, it feels like people are just now kind of really, really getting to know you. At what point did you know for sure this is something that I want to do for the rest of my life and this is something I know I can make money at? The funny thing is the money part never really clicked because I've been underpaid most of my career. I think just until the past few years, I finally, you know who the first person who paid me without me having to negotiate, ask questions, do the dance was Tyler Perry. He has that reputation. He came through. I said, oh, I said, what happened now? Who said what? So he was the first person that came to the table. And and since then, in the past few years, I think since the pandemic, I've, I've been very much, I think it comes up back to the whole being unbothered. It's like, I can say no. So just very, very young. I mean, not even, I don't even, before I even knew what making a living was. Like I was, I started dancing when I was like four. So I went to like a performing arts school that started in like the fourth grade. But prior to that, I was always a ham. Like I was, I remember my older cousin, I was at her birthday party <laughs> throwing a full fledged concert. I had people waving their hands and lighting lighters, like a full concert in my aunt's living room. So I was always the ham that loved to perform, loved to do things. So it was always something in me. I thought I was going to be a ballerina, but when I went to that performing arts school and started doing the acting and, and the whole nine and then went off, you know, you know, God's plan was different than my plan. And here we are. So, but I always knew that this was something that I wanted to do. Even when I went to college and tried to have something to fall back on, like my mother wanted me to do, I went and studied communications. Even that, my goal was to be, I wanted my own production company and studio to create family-friendly content. So it was still in the world of that space some kind of way. So who knows what the future holds, but I'm very happy and blessed that I know the blessing it is to have to be in tune with what I want to do at such a young age because it helped guide my choices and my movements, you know, going in life and feeling like I had a purpose and I had a mission. Um, so I'm very, very, very grateful for being aware of that so young. So when you were giving the family the concert, what were you singing? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I think I remember one song in particular. I don't even know if it was, I don't know if I did the whole album, but I, there was a song my mom loved and I was, it was Secret Lover. You wait, time out. You were not singing. Baby, I was down here talking about. Hold on. <laughs> you were, <laughs> you were not singing Secret Lover. Oh, baby. Yes. <laughs> and I have this video. I, it's on videotape, VHS. I don't know how, if I'll ever get it off of, uh, into a different format. But, I, you know, back then all the songs were grown. We didn't know what we were talking about. I remember doing an In Vogue song at like this, it's Cincinnati did this big family reunion, black family reunion every year. And I was on one of the stages. You know, we did Janet Jackson on one of our performances. And then I was singing some In Vogue, talk about some, uh, <laughs> Whatever that song is. I can't remember the words. Don't go. Oh, don't go. It was don't go. Yes, you're right. Yep. Please don't go. Yeah, I can't sound nearly as good as you. Yep. Mm -hmm. And my little background saying, ah. we had our little biker shorts back when biker shorts was a thing. We all, none of us could fill out our biker shorts. I think my friend could, but me and my sisters, we were like this and our biker shorts were like around our limbs like this. We were so skinny. <laughs> <laughs> they fit in like baggy jeans. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. That's well, it's, it's a whole, as you said, it's a whole list of songs that we were all singing at a young age, like saving all my love for you. I didn't realize that was such a sad piece song until I got, until I got older. I was like, this used to be my jam. And I was like seven. I don't even understand. This. There was also, I was like, there must've been men writing a lot of these songs back in the nineties because I was listening to one song and I was mad now that older. I'm like, he's mine. You made a hat of once, but I got a. Why we? But I had him all the time, girl. Moking stuff. <laughs> but back in the day, like he, you know, you was into it like, mm. and I was like, well, the hell, that's why we all was thinking so out of like what, like that's not how we should be thinking. Like we should be thinking like, sir, you screwed up, and how are we gonna fix this? Not why are you even talking to her? Talk to your man. They did bring a certain uh, glorification to side piece and that was much different. So I agree with you. You're right. It might have been some men. Yeah, yeah. Men not having to be responsible for them adding to breaking up the, the happy home. You know what I mean? Like, it's always like, let's attack the other woman or let's go to the other woman. That woman wasn't responsible for your relationship. Your man was. Y'all be calling up Shirley. <laughs> oh my God. Please don't start with, hello, Barbara. This is Shirley. <laughs> hello, Barbara. <laughs> That's one of 
one of the best interludes of R.B. history. Of all time. <laughs> Barbara and Shirley, boy. I was like, man, listen. Okay, you're going to have me listen to this song, that song after this podcast because I so just so I can bust out laughing because <laughs> it's so preposterous. Uh, but listen, it's a lot more that I definitely want to ask you about, about some of the projects that you're working on now, about what other stuff we can look forward to in your career. But we're going to take a very quick break and we'll be back with more with Gabrielle Dennis. One of the more entertaining stories recently involved Michael B. Jordan running into a former classmate of his on the red carpet of the premiere for Creed 3. When the young lady tried to interview him, he took that opportunity to remind her that she called him corny when they were in school. You never forget the people who teased you. And I got a story to tell about some of the people who teased me growing up. Now, thankfully, I didn't experience any really severe bullying, but my eighth grade year was probably the most I'd ever been bullied, if we're calling it that. Now, I lay 50 to 60 percent of the blame for this pseudo bullying on my mother because this was 1988. I had a jerry curl. Now, getting this jerry curl, which by that point I may have had about three years, this was completely my mother's idea. I did not want a jerry curl, but my mother beasted me into it because she wanted me to have an easier hairstyle that she could manage. So it was never about me. It was about her. Listen, I know some of us are in a former Jerry Curl wear support group because of the trauma we experience having a Jerry Curl. If I hear a plastic bag rattle now, I start shaking. I think of the pillowcases I ruined, the greasiness of the back of my neck, all from the activator, the touch-ups every six to seven weeks with the hair rods. Y'all don't know nothing about that struggle. Anyway, by 1988, jerry curls were starting to be less and less cool. In my hood, they were phasing out. And I was feeling like I was in a game of musical chairs and I was without the chair that didn't have the jerry curl. The number of people with jerry curls started to dwindle as my eighth grade year progressed. And no matter how much I begged my mother to let me get rid of this damn jerry curl, she wouldn't do it because she was afraid the transition from jerry curl to perm would take all my hair out. So I was stuck with this curl and this did not go unnoticed by my classmates. And one time in between touch-ups when my jerry curl was looking a little forest fire dry, one of my classmates, a knot-headed boy named Gerald, said that I looked like Chucky. I don't remember Gerald's last name, but I know it was definitely Gerald. And of course, he repeated this nickname several times over. And each time he did, there seemed to be even more and more people around. And next thing I know, Practically everybody in my eighth grade class is calling me Chucky. And oh, by the way, when I say Chucky, I mean as in the Chucky doll from the horror movie. But I was hearing it everywhere. What's up, Chucky? How you doing, Chucky? You watched last night's episode of the Cosby show, Chucky? I'm telling you, if I would have thought of it, I would have gone to the nearest drugstore, bought some clippers and shaved my head. At that point, I would have preferred to be hairless than have one more fucking person call me Chucky. Eventually. Eighth grade year ended, and that summer I demanded to get that jerry curl taken out. I feel like my grandmother was complicit in this because there was no way I was starting ninth grade with a damn jerry curl. A wise decision because let's just say a few of those same boys calling me Chucky in eighth grade, they was looking at the kid differently when they saw that fresh Hawaiian silky. Know what I'm saying? Anyway, Gerald, wherever you are, First of all, you suck. And if I ever see you on a red carpet, I'm shading the fuck out of you. And now back to more with Gabrielle Dennis. I want to go uh, go back to something you said. You brought up uh, Tyler Perry. And, you know, Tyler Perry, it was funny you told that story about, like, he was the first person that you didn't have to negotiate. Because Taraji P. Henson said that he was the very first person that paid her her actual rate, where there wasn't a lot of, of back and forth. But in general... I, because of the way he's built his business, which is so unlike Hollywood. Um, give us an idea of like what it was like to be a part of the Tyler Perry universe. I was excited because first of all, as a black actor, when you move to Hollywood, every auntie, older cousin, grandma, I'll be like, well, why don't you just go work with Tyler? Like, it's that easy. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just like, right. Like you could just call him up. Hey, Tyler, I'm coming to work with you. <laughs> So for me to finally get that call, like 10 years deep, I was like, oh, snap, it's happening. I 
finally can tell everybody I've arrived. Tyler Perry wants to work with me. So it was just exciting to get that call. But then also to witness, like I said, I'd always wanted to have my own production company and studio when I was in, in college. That was my goal. And everybody always told me how it's going to be so hard and how you need money. And I was like, so for me, he's very inspiring. This is a man that used to be homeless. And here he is in this multi-million dollar sound stages and like just acres and acres of land. And he's also a fellow germaphobe. So I was like, I feel like I'm going to be safe when I go to set up this pandemic. But I was excited to go work and like see Medea, you know, and it was so funny the first day he's like, don't be put off when I'm, you know, I'm six foot, whatever. When I come up to you dressed as a woman in my deep voice, giving you directions, you know what I'm saying? So it's just like, because my first day was a scene with him as Medea. And it was, it was very interesting to just see him be himself and then put on the Medea whole persona and then the Uncle Joe whole persona and like, just be this director and like calling the shots and just, just seeing him in his element was really, really inspiring to watch. And then to just witness firsthand, like, first of all, driving up to this, it's an experience, like driving up to the campus and all of the faces that look like me and to know that that man is responsible for all of this employment here to me it was just beautiful like it was really i don't know it was it was a it was a special touching experience to just be like oh tyler did it he's doing it for us and like i you feel like a genuine love um, when you were there you might be the first howard grad i ever talked to who was able to resist multiple opportunities to say where you went to school <laughs> because nobody puts on for howard like howard grads put on for Howard but uh, you know I didn't go to an HBCU but I obviously have many friends who did many friends who went to Howard how did your experience there kind of shape you you know it was great for me that was my first time and of course I grew up black but like to see the monolith that we are to like to see the range of black people coming from all over the country, even from around the world to see the styles and the fashion and the hair and just the food, just the cultural differences, even some of the language and just hear stories of people from like, you know, the islands or people from the South. Or It was just a great experience to just really see. I was like, this is my people, you know what I mean? And to have an educational experience to learn about the Black diaspora, you know, and like have these, all of these different um, professors that, you know, really held that in regard, in a high regard, this, the, the beauty of what we, we are and our history. Um, so for me, the experience of going to an HBCU was very, very important. It was something I had always wanted to do. And I had actually gotten a partial scholarship to Ohio State. But then when I realized HBCUs, I'm sorry, HBCUs be being late. They be being HBCU and <laughs> know that I had got accepted. But when I got accepted, I rearranged everything and I hopped my little tail right over to Howard. And um, it was a great experience. And I feel like the reason I always wanted to go to HBCU is I'm pretty sure that that experience would have been felt regardless of what HBCU I went to. It's just, just this underlying culture and history and beauty and pride that goes with that. Was there anybody of note that was going there at the same time that you were there? I remember Frenchie Davis, uh, like personally, that I people that I went to that I knew personally because she was the first person who uh, took me to like one of the like the little balls or whatever. Like I was like, yes, y'all gave me my life. I don't remember. Like specifically people I knew because I was very much so I didn't stay on campus and I went to work, homeschool, work, homeschool. So I didn't really have, I do wish I had the college experience, like the campus life, but I never stayed on um, campus. I know you went to homecoming though. Don't act like you was always in the room. I know you went to homecoming. I went to homecoming a couple of times, but I think I've only been like once, maybe twice since I graduated. But again, I was just always working, but I did go to like a couple of games. I think I went to like a fashion show, comedy show. I didn't have like, I didn't have like a close knit of, of friends there. Like I had like two girls in my communications department and also was a, a communications major. So I've only minored in theater. So I, I knew of people, but I wasn't like close to um, anybody that went there. Did you think about majoring in theater? I did, but the high school I went to, I majored in communications. So that was kind of like, that was the path I was on for that. And then I was like, I'll minor in and see what happens. Cause my mother really wanted me to have something to fall back on. She's like, you know, you've done the arts, but let's find some something else is going to pay those bills. Um, she, you know, just very pragmatic, very, you know, trying to be very realistic and, and setting me up in that way. But I don't think Chadwick was there when I was there. Um, but like I said, I didn't know a lot of the arts kids. I just happened to know Frenchie. I don't even remember why we 
hung out. I think probably from like sitting in the back of an audition and just hearing that girl sing, your whole body gets chills, you know? So uh, you made the decision, I think after you graduated to move to LA. Now you just said your mom, you know, she was trying to be pragmatic. So when you told her you wanted to move to LA to pursue entertainment, how did she respond? I don't remember there being like a conversation. I've always been very much so like, I'm gonna do this and and it gets done. Like <laughs> I remember when I first started working, I was like, I'm going to get a car. I worked one summer, had my car within like a few months, the same day I had my license. I remember I was like, I want, I want furniture for my bed bedroom. I went and got it and, and built it, you know, and put it up and all the whole thing. So when I went off to LA, it was just kind of like, well, Gab says she's going to do it. Let's see what happens. Like, I don't think anybody was trying to like give me any warning signs or hold me back, but I will say, I don't think anybody in my family is like, because nobody was really like in that world. I don't think anybody was like rooting me on necessarily, but no one was like giving, like no one was holding me back. I just think it was a pleasant surprise when people were like, oh, she's doing it. You know what I'm saying? So um, I don't remember having a conversation with her. I just think I've just packed my bags one day and I was like, I'm gonna do it. This is the day I'm gonna drive across the country. And she helped me move. Like I I went to, um, I was leaving DC. I stopped in Ohio, picked her up. And then she helped me drive the rest of the way. I think we ran out of gas somewhere, like a, a, a mile from the gas station in our little U-Haul truck. But uh, my mom is very much gonna be there for me when I need her to be there. So that is what's so beautiful about having your mom around and, um, she even, she tried to move here when I first got here so that she could be supportive in the way of making sure I don't have to pay for, you know, bills by myself and things like that. And then my sister had a baby. So granddaughter Trump's daughter, and then she left, but she <laughs> 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 was like, you know, I got you and let's, let's do this. And like, I'm here to support you for that. So I'm always grateful that she, she saw in me that there was this hunger, there was this desire and she took it serious enough. So, so you rich auntie. Technically. Yes, I love being an aunt. So what were those early days in LA like for you? I kind of feel like I hit the ground running because I was very much so like, I moved here, I'm focused. Like going to parties, doing things like that. None of that appealed to me. I was like, I'm sacrificing too much to be here. I don't have time to get lost in the woes of Hollywood. I don't got time to be some, you know, whatever. I just was very focused. And by the grace of God, my first job. I got a hosting job. I didn't know nothing about what I was hosting, but <laughs> my hosting skills had paid off while I went to college for. Um, it was a it was for street basketball, the street basketball show. I had never played street basketball. I had never watched street basketball, but those producers that day when I auditioned, they believed all the things I needed them to believe to give me that job. What was funny was, and it was a salary position for this new network that ended up getting canceled midway. The whole thing shut down for some reason, but um, <laughs> it was funny. All was all systems were a go and I was pulling it off until it was time to shoot the opening credits. And they thought I could dribble a basketball up and down the court for the opening credits on the outdoor court. I was like, so what we can do is, you know how Dave and Busters, you just, that's, I can, I got the, but all that dribbling, mm -mm, she ain't never dribbled in her life, probably since she was seven. <laughs> well, you know, as they say, fake it till you make it, right? So you, you made them believe it. Right? That's right. And then after that, I got to work with freaking Damon Wayans. Like on, that was the first time I got to do sketch comedy. and. That was a blessing. And, you know, the show got canceled. I thought I had another, that was another moment where I, it was a lot of starts and stops at the beginning of my career. I will say with that hosting gig and the, the network getting canceled, then me booking um, that sketch comedy show, The Underground with uh, Damon Wayans, then that got canceled after its first season. I thought I had right. I was like, hello, I'm the only black girl on the show. Like, clearly this is going to be the next, you know, uh, living color. And then that show got canceled. Then I had did like a lot of pilots. I got this pilot with um, Bill Burr and with Kevin Hart for Comedy Central. I was like, here we go. Nope, that didn't get picked up. Kevin was like, nah, uh, forget all this TV stuff. I'm going to be a movie star real quick. So then he blew up. So it was a lot of this, like, you know, playing like, you know, double dutch or whatever. But eventually it's a it's a game of probabilities and numbers. And eventually your numbers want to come up if you just keep at it and keep at it. I always think of this drawing, this like a uh, comic drawing that I've seen, um, everyone's seen, where like the guy's digging a tunnel and then the one guy gives up. And from our point of view, he was that close and he had just kept going. So I feel like eventually you'll get to where you're trying to go. You just got to stay the course and be patient because they say it takes 10 years to be an overnight success in this business. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? You just have to have the patience. So there was never a point, maybe not in the early days, but even 
if, if you've gone through tough patches in your career where you thought like, this might not be for me? I've never felt it wasn't for me. There were times where the, the hard work became a lot. It would just take over where I, I, I call it actor depression. So we get on this high when things are going, we're just ba 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 ba. Life is good. Life is feeding our, it's fueling us. When everything stops, it's like a crash, especially if you only got nothing else lined up, nothing else is going on. And because we live in a world in space where this is even before social media was what it is now. It's just like you live in a world where you're comparing or being compared to your peers. So there's this constant pressure on your back to what's next, what's next, what's next. So that's what I was saying when you were asking about the being unbothered. I no longer deal with that, which is such a saving grace. I think it first hit me when I booked um, Rosewood. Like this feeling just went through my body. Of course I prayed and I cried because a part of it was like, hallelujah, I'm done auditioning for this year. (laughs) I was so grateful to be, I was like, woo, them auditions was killing me for pilot season. But I was like, it was the first time it clicked. Like, oh my gosh. That saying of what's for me is for me or what's for you is for you, meant for you. And, you know, we say stuff because we hear it. It sounds good. You know, you try to psych yourself up. But that was the first time it clicked because there were so many jobs prior to that that I really, really wanted, that I really thought I was right for, that I really was so close or this or that, 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 that. And then that one, I was like, oh, this one's the one that had my name on it. This is the job. Pippi Rosewood was for me. That was nobody else's. So when I had a little moment on the couch and I cried, because of course they like to dangle the wait time. Like they were like, oh, well we, you know, you might have like five days for them to let you know because you have to sign your contract when you actually audition. And of course they wait to like day five, hour 12. You know what I'm saying? You're like on the couch, barely can breathe. And every time the phone rang, you're like, huh? Huh? So then the phone rang. I was like, whoa. So it was also like a release intention of like all this emotion. But it really, really was. I swear to you, Jamel, like it was like, it hit me that what's meant for you is meant for you. And I believed that ever since that day. And I haven't wavered from that. It helped me accept all of the no's because you get so many no's. It helped me accept that so much easier now that it it's now like when, when, you know, when Rosewood got canceled, I was excited about like, oh, well, what's next? Not, oh, I lost a job. It's like, okay, cool. God, what's up next? Like, what we doing now? And then Luke Cage came around. So it was like, you know. It's, it's about kind of staying in a space of controlling what you can control because we can't control those no's. We can't control what goes on those rooms. All I can do is show up and do my best work, be my best self. But to be my best self and to do my best work, I have to take care of myself, which is my mental health, my physical health, and being present as I can with being in tune with what I need in life when it comes to how to cope with those no's and the coat with this industry. So that was a big eye opener for me when that, when that moment clicked. You know, with, with all that being said, and, and it's great that you're able to have that attitude and that perspective about it. Is there a role that you didn't get that you still think about? Not a role that I got, but a role that I had that didn't continue. I will say when I did get Luke Cage, I was so excited because they had slow walked this character to have this big reveal. And then literally the day before I got the call that they canceled the show, I had gotten a call about how big my character was going to be in the next season, how much like, oh, you're going to be the new villain and da, 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 da. So I was stoked and I've always wanted to do, um, you know, like a superhero or like a supervillain or like be in that, that world in that space. I was like that close. I was in the Marvel universe, but never really got to just show off. Like I got to rock those, those uh, Afro puffs one time. I was like, come on, man, let me, let me rock them Afro puffs again. (laughs) Give me the Afro puffs. I loved Luke Cage. It was easily one of my favorite shows. And when they announced they were canceling that, I was just distraught. Like, I can't believe it. And it was awesome because I got to do a cameo in it. And so the the writing, the, just all of it, the entire series. And I was just like, this show has got to come back somewhere. And I know it was, you know, politics above everybody's pay grade. That and it shocked them. I don't think anyone saw it coming. It didn't get canceled because it wasn't successful. That's for sure. That one definitely hurt. That one hurt. That one still stings a little bit to this day, just because I think had I not known that there was a potential of like where that character was going to go. Um, but like, it's just kind of like, it was that character that was dangled in front of your face. But you know, it's just like one day I'll just have to, what that means is one day I'll either have to create my own in that same kind of a space, my own character, my own project. Um, or maybe that role will come back around in some capacity and I'll just be able to really, really show my ass then. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, speaking of, so you've been able to, you know, work closely with, you know, somebody like Robin. We see what has happened with Quinta Brunson's career. Somebody also who is a Black Lady Sketch Show alum. 
you look at someone like Issa Rae, how has seeing their career path, both as being in front of the camera and in and behind the camera, how has that influenced maybe how you move? It's very motivational. It's definitely let me take a uh, inventory of how I've I've had this problem my whole, most of my life of like dimming my light. And because I remember when I, because I went to perform in our school and because I was doing a lot of commercials and different things, there was like, I was very keenly aware of the first time I was at the vending machine and some girls was like, she thinks she all that. Mind you, I hadn't opened my mouth. I was literally just standing. But because their perception of me was, I thought I was all that because I'm doing da 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 that stuck with me. And I didn't realize it then, but like later on, I was like, oh, that's kind of where a part of me has dimmed my light or, or I'm afraid to do too much. Like, okay, things are naturally happening, but I don't want to push it. You know, I don't want to do too much. And I'm like, no, that's not how these women are making the moves that they're making. That's not these. And it's not even about a self thing. It's more of like these women are helping change other women's lives. These women are helping create other careers and other opportunities and helping other people feed their families. That to me is more important than what it would bring to me uh, personally from a success standpoint. So to be able to see that legacy that all of them are able to leave behind, that to me is what's very inspiring and motivating in the, in the sense that, okay, it's time to like dust off your shoulders, put on your big girl boots and just be ready to, to do above and beyond what your, your comfort level. You know what I'm saying? We get into a groove or you're comfortable being staying in the space as an actress, but that's not all I can do. Like I write, I produce, I direct, but now it's, it's time to step on that other side of the fear or the doubt or the, the what ifs, you know what I mean? Like getting those seeds out of my head in that space, like the acting lane, I feel very comfortable over here, but now, but because I feel like other people are comfortable with me in that space. Now it's about like, whether they're comfortable or not, it's time to make some moves. You know what I mean? So I think for me, just seeing these boss women, like they are so boss in what they do and none of them come with an air of arrogance. None of them come with a better than me attitude. It's just very refreshing to just see women stick with their their vision. They, they are very clear with what they want to do with these projects. And to see them go from page to stage to me is just like, wow. So when is a Black Lady Sketch Show coming back? When can we see you all again? I would expect this year. Okay. I don't have any dates or anything, but you know we've already filmed. So I can't imagine. I mean, I would imagine this this season would be this year sometime, um, but no later than I would assume next year. I hope they won't make, make us wait that, that long. But um, we, we, we finished season four. I can't believe we've done four freaking seasons of the show. People love it. We love doing it. Um, it's a lot of work. It is. <laughs> I've seen that up close. Like it is a lot of work. <laughs> Ooh, when I tell you every joint in my body hurts when I play the gang leader, like every muscle, because like everything is like incorporated. And, and comedy is so much about timing and like, so you have to always be on. So it's, it's exhausting by the time you get like, I don't think people know how much work goes into to doing sketch and our production does such a great job of them all feeling like little individual um, movies, like little mini short films or whatever. Like that's the level of quality production that goes into it. We're always in a different location. We don't shoot on a soundstage where we just kind of move stages around. Hair does a great job of not repeating a look. You know, they're and, and to watch Robin and her team just be so laser, laser focused, they have a specific idea for everything. And all the departments have to come together and make it work. So it's a lot, a lot of work that goes into it. And I think Robin pretty much works on that show almost all year round between, you know, the writing, the performing, the editing, the promoting of it. So just hats off to her. Just it's amazing. So um, the show has obviously become known for having great cameos. So is there anyone you can tell us that might be appearing on the next season of A Black Lady? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I had to ask. I had to try. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. I do have a dream cast cameo. I would love. Who is the dream cameo? I need to hit a with Janet Jackson. Just one, five, six, seven. Janet Jackson. We're going to put that out in the atmosphere. Janet Jackson, because I know you listening. You need to be on a Black Lady Sketch Show. <laughs> the possibilities would be endless. Oh, my God. So endless because she's such a great actress and a performer. Like, she's an entertainer. And just to be around that that spirit and that energy, I just think she's also just feels like this humble. I don't know. She's just to me like the Mona Lisa of that performer entertainer vibes of like, 
she seems like a good human, but also very, very talented. And sometimes you don't get both of those things. If y'all ever get Janet Jackson, y'all have to do maybe Penny's revenge on her mama for burning her with that iron. (laughs) Before I get you out of here, Gabrielle, um, it's time for what I call the most controversial portion of the interview on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. It is when I play a game with every guest that appears that's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. So I give you two choices and you have to pick one. <laughs> okay. So this is where the controversy goes down. So I warned you. You can't say I warned you. All right. Uh, I know that you are fluent in Real Housewives of Atlanta. So Nene or Candy? So Nene's the OG, right? Candy personally, to me, is very similar to my vibes. So I like that because she's a multifaceted you know, she's very much like all over the world in that way. I would have to say Candy. Okay. I would say like Nene, as you said, she's like the the, the pillar. She's like the institution. The pillar, man. And nobody can read like Nene. <laughs> nobody can read like Nene. First of all, Nene's why the show people were watching. Yeah. She's really, I think Nene's hilarious, but you know. Yeah. Candy's somebody more you can relate to. Now, do you also watch Real Housewives of Potomac? I've seen some of that. I watched The Housewives of Dubai. Because I was considering, I wanted to move someplace or like explore someplace. And I was like, Dubai was always on my list. And I was like, how are they rolling over there? And I was like, they don't seem to hate black people there. So I was like, that's a good start. (laughs) Exactly. All right. Chicken and mambo sauce or Skyline chili? (gasps) Oh, that's dirty. (laughs) That's dirty. Cincinnati's uh, pride and joy, Skyline chili. (laughs) For those who don't know. I'm going to go with Skyline chili. Okay. <laughs> I figured you'd get a kick out of that one. Jamie Foxx in Django or Jamie Foxx as Ray? I mean, Jamie Foxx is anything because this is how I feel about Jamie Foxx. He, to me, he's what I aspire to be. He's done it all. He as Ray was mind blowing. Even to this day, knowing it's Jamie Foxx, you're watching, it's like there's times you have to remind yourself that's not Ray. The man is just good. He's so talented. Oh, my gosh. That man. Woo. Yeah, he is definitely like a generational star. It's amazing how many things he is able to do just well. That's just something that just doesn't just happen. It's just like, my God, this guy is talented at everything that he does. All right. And finally, your portrayal as Whitney Houston or your portrayal as Tina Turner? Oh, mm, mm. you know what? I'm going to go with. Tina, and I'm gonna tell you why. Even though it was a shorter, it was a one episode situation, I got to sing, I got to dance, and I got to emulate one of the greatest performers of all time. Whereas with Whitney, I got to play the non-superstar version of her, which was great and fun, but that that was a lot of hard work too. And I felt like that was the supporting role of that movie. Like the movie was about Bobby Brown, and I think Woody obviously did an amazing job. But something about being able to recreate a moment in history on Soul Train in those costumes, the wardrobe did such a good job. Like big girl, they was able to even fit all. I had like twists in my hair at the time. They were able to fit all my vacation hair under the wig. (laughs) And so I got to record in the studio and like record the music and like do choreography. Like that to me was such a great experience of like the overall artist in me because you know, I got to do a little bit of everything. So that was fun. Well, it's not many actors who can say that they got a chance to portray like two of the most iconic singers of all time. So that's a, a hell of a thing to have on your resume. <laughs> <laughs> um, but listen, Gabrielle, I want to thank you for spending this time with me. Uh, and, you know, so many people have just enjoyed seeing the fullness of who you are, you know, as a comedian, as somebody who can sing and act, do all the things. So I wish you nothing but the best. And thanks again for joining me on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Thank you. And I'm so proud of you and keep doing your thing and, and, and being vocal as you always are and standing in your truth because you inspire so many of us in so many ways. I don't even know that you're aware. So your strength is a huge part of your beauty. And I know that's like a thing as black women. We don't try to be like, it's all about the strength, but your strength is layered. It's the strength in how you love people. It's the strength in how you stand true and who you are. And I wish you continued blessings. Oh, well, thank you. That was very kind of you to say. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Gabrielle's getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment, Fuck It, I'm Bothered. (laughs) 
off with the fraudin' Fuck it, I'm bothered Hit you with the spice that I offer Fuck it, I'm bothered And guess who just got a big old bag news? Zendaya, who I recently saw at the NAACP Image Awards, leaving not a single crumb with what she wore. She is now getting stupidly paid on her contract renegotiation on her highly successful HBO show, Euphoria, which I still haven't watched, but I promise I'm gonna get on it. According to media reports, Zendaya is getting $1 million per episode. This should be cause to celebrate, but naturally, the haters came running to the comments section in the social media like roaches when the lights come on with that weak ass, does she really deserve to get paid that much money kind of vibe. And fuck it, I'm bothered because so many black women in every corner of the society are underpaid. And I'm so here to celebrate Zendaya getting paid. It's like I'm the one getting paid. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, on average, black women were paid 58% of what non-Hispanic white men were paid in 2020. And realize that black women face such a wider pay gap because we participate in the workforce at a much higher rate than most women. So seeing Zendaya get that money is not just affirming, it's entirely justified Three years ago, she made history as the youngest actor to take home an Emmy for Best Lead Actress in a Drama. Last year, she became the only black woman to win two Emmy Awards for Best Lead Actress in a Drama. To give you all some context, Kevin Costner reportedly makes $1.3 million per episode for Yellowstone. Mahershala Ali is expected to make the same for The Plot, a new series coming to Hulu that hasn't premiered yet. Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren are making $1 million an episode for the Yellowstone prequel series, 1923. Point being, run her her money. She is right there with her peers and deserves every dime that's directly deposited. And just so you know, the second highest paid black woman on television is Angela Bassett, who makes $450,000 an episode for her series, 911. And when she inked that deal, that was considered groundbreaking. What Zendaya just got is on another level. By the way, Zendaya, if you're listening, I just really want to know one thing. Can a sister borrow $5? Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the fraud. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. My word, how I live, you don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Spry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of seven, five, and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live. It. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live, you don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.